Our text today is found in the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. We have now, for several weeks, been looking at the doctrine of creation. What we've looked at thus far is to to see how the neglect of the doctrine of creation has had an impact in the church, in the academy, and in society as well. Last week, uh, we continued with the thought that one cannot tell the story of redemption without telling the story of creation. We cannot tell the story of creation apart from the story of redemption. As we have seen, if one believes that God created the world, the result of which is creation, then one also believes that creation has a purpose. It has a telos, if you wish, an end, a direction in which it is going. That is, we are to believe that God created creation and gave it a purpose. But if a society or the academy rejects the existence of God, then the focus is no longer on the purpose of creation, but rather on the various causes that may exist within creation. And the belief is that such causes exist apart from deity, from God, any creator. And inevitably, humans take it upon themselves, the task of assigning a purpose to nature. The result is that creation is seen as a burden and a curse, and it is seen as lacking any purpose whatsoever. Nature, as it is now called by humans, rather than creation, has only the purpose that we might assign to it. The reality is what we have seen in Scripture is that the purpose of both creation and redemption, because we cannot see one without looking at the other, the fulfillment of both creation and redemption are found in the new creation. Jonathan Wilson, who has written on this, writes, we may, simply, we may say simply that God works creation and redemption for this, the new creation. By the way, you may remember that in the promise of forgiveness after the prayer of confession, that if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. 
The story of creation, as is found in Genesis, assumes God's redemptive work in its historical origins and its theological character. We saw this several weeks ago. Consider, when did Moses write down the book of Genesis? When was it that he told Israel what had happened in the beginning of things? Well, it happened after the Exodus. They had been miraculously redeemed, taken out of slavery. They are now at Sinai making a covenant with God, or God is making a covenant with them. And now, in the light of redemption, God has redeemed them. Moses now tells them, the God who redeemed you is also the God who created the world. It is in the context of redemption that Israel learns of creation. And how would the Israelites even know this to be true? I mean, certainly there must have been people who doubted, who said... Moses, how do we know this isn't just a fairy tale? Well, they knew that the story he was telling them of creation was true because they had just lived through the story of redemption. And the God who did miraculous things, the ten plagues on Israel, the opening of the Red Sea, feeding them with manna, this is the God to say he created the world. That's not a real stretch for them. Because God, in fact, had done the miraculous. He had brought them out of slavery after four centuries of being slaves. Because they had experienced and been participants in God's redemption, they believed in God's creation. For us, I think what we need to recognize is that we can only recognize the world as creation because of God's redemption. And I think if, in fact, we back away from God as Redeemer, Ultimately, we sort of back away from God as creator and this is creation. And then we sort of go into this is nature. This is the environment rather than having a sense that this is what God has made. As Christians, we confess that the way things are now is not the way that it has always been, nor the way that it will always be. The world is indeed a place of suffering and of pain. But when we confess that, when we admit that the world is not as it has always been, we also say that God is redeeming the world. God will make all things new. And it is this conviction that God is changing the world that should in fact change everything about how we live in the world. Consider that if in fact we believe the world is as it has always been and always will be, then I think fatalism is the only thing that is possible for us. We accept the conflicts and the dangers, the struggles, disease, death, everything, and just try to make the best of it, sort of grin and bear it. But if in fact in Jesus Christ we know that God is redeeming his creation, then we can live in it with trust, with expectation, and with joy. We can look forward with anticipation to the redemption that has already begun. It began with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And one day it will be complete. So, as Christians, we are to confess and to live out our convictions about creation. And we learn about creation only through God's redeeming work. On the other hand, if, in fact, we do what many Christians in our generation, and I would say for the past 300 years have done, if we separate creation and redemption, then the world becomes somewhat unreal. It becomes unreal. It becomes a world without meaning. 
think a moment. If, in fact, we separate the two stories, the story of creation, the story of redemption, what happens? Well, I think we become very modern and we become very scientific. The assumption of science is that the way the world is is the way that it has always been. There are Christians who critique this, as we saw last week, but in fact what they do is they are buying into the same assumptions uh, that we should view nature rather than creation as something that is there, something that is to be understood, that we can understand apart from redemption. When, in fact, someone says, you know, carbon-14 dating, that... that you know, you're, you're buying into a uniform, uh, uniformitarian view of reality and we don't accept that, but you're still dealing purely with the material world and separating it from the doctrine of redemption. As Christians, when we bring the two together, we assume a, fo- a more fundamental change is occurring in God's creation. Not to say that science cannot and has not done amazing things. That, in fact, has measured things quite accurately. We can't say, well, no, no, you can't do that because you're, you, you know, you're, you're buying into certain presuppositions. No, the Christian doctrine of creation asserts that there is something going on. It's redemption. Through science, we can, in fact, know about visible and invisible phenomena. But if, in fact, reconciliation is absent from the way that we look at the world, then, in fact, I think we will not have a true understanding of the way things are. Our knowledge, our confession, our living falls short of what God intends. And it's not simply a a problem of science. It is also a theological problem. I mentioned it last week that in the history of the church, uh, in the last five centuries, there's been sort of this, this notion of there's an order of creation and there's an order of redemption. And this is simply wrong. The result is you end up with a very pale and unhealthy uh, doctrine of creation and a very pale gospel, a very unhealthy gospel. God's purpose is reduced to saving souls, like a rescue operation, rather than salvation which involves the whole person and the whole creation. Um, As I said last week, I think oftentimes people see creation as uh, the set on the stage. All the world's a stage, you know, and the creation is a set. And when everything is said and done, then you just sort of break down the set and that's it. We got done what needed to be done, the saving of people, and that's all that God cared about. That is a faulty view of creation, a faulty view of redemption, and the result is the gospel is not what God intended. In Revelation 21, we read, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. What we find in the book of Revelation is not sort of a terminus that everything ends and then we start all over again. We in fact find continuity between this creation and the new creation. You can't have a new creation if you don't have the old creation. And the old creation and redemption together are headed toward what God intends and that is the new creation. In our text last week, we read this. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
and we read the entire passage last week, in which there's very Christian-y sounding, very spiritual sounding things like prayer and the Spirit helping us in our prayer. But then there's also talking about the redemption of our bodies and the fact that creation itself is groaning. Creation is waiting. It knows it is the old creation. It is looking ahead to the new creation that God, through his Son and by his Spirit, will bring to pass. The separation between creation and redemption, I I think, is illustrated in the following story. It's from a book called The Praying Life. Connecting with God and His Distracting World by Paul L. Miller. Uh, again, I've been reading this together at night. And when Gia read this, uh, I thought of what we were talking about here. He tells of his daughter, Emily, who is working on her science project in the seventh grade. She had decided for her project she would measure bacteria levels along the bank of a local stream. He decided to help her. And at first, they waded into the stream. They got a water sample. They carefully tested it. And he writes, We were both nervous about following the precise steps of our little bacteria testing kit, so before we started, we prayed. Our family's record with science projects was not stellar. And he gives a list of just the disasters that his other kids, you know, in in one particular one, his wife actually accidentally threw out her son's science project. So he writes, We definitely needed to pray. After they finished the first test, Emily, his daughter, took out her logbook to record each step. He continues, she asked me what we had done first, and I told her that we had prayed. She said, I can't write that. Why not? We prayed. That isn't how it works, Dad. They don't want us to say that. As he informs the reader, Emily had gone to Christian schools her whole life, beginning in nursery school. She regularly attended Sunday school and church. She went to Christian camp in the summer. All her friends were Christians, as were her brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles. As he writes, frankly, she lived in a Christian ghetto. Yet this mysterious they trumped this massive Christian influence in her life. Miller goes on to explain that because of the Enlightenment, reality had been divided into two realms, one in which things are true to me, and the other in which things are true to everyone. In line with what we are studying, I would say that people would argue that creation is the realm in which things are true to all. So this is science and history, computers, nature, all those things. And then redemption is the realm in which things are true to me, that Jesus loves me, that Jesus came into the world, that he died to save me and he will come again and take me to heaven. We might pray about things in the true-to-me realm. Um, That's generally what we do. But we might, from time to time, actually pray for things in the true-to-all realm. We just won't tell other people. Unless it falls into the miraculous category. Then, I think in our society, that's acceptable. When someone says, I prayed and a miracle happened, people are like, well, that's good. But if, in fact, you said, I prayed before my science project, people are like, what are you doing? Supposed to be doing science. Um, I will repeat what I've asserted throughout this series. If we have a weak doctrine of creation, we will likewise have a weak doctrine of redemption. And in order to recover a biblical doctrine of creation, we must have with it a biblical doctrine of redemption. And we must have a biblical view of God. As Christians, we confess one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. These three in one work together in creation and redemption. 
I think none of us have a problem with it in terms of redemption. We might struggle more in terms of creation. If we're not careful, and the church has done this from time to time, we will separate the two. Here's creation over here, here's redemption over here, and we would say that God the Father does this over here, and then God the the Son does redemption, and then the Spirit carries on the work after him. If, in fact, we confess one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we commit ourselves to a grammar, if you wish, a series of rules for understanding what we think about God, how we worship God, how we bear witness to God, how we participate in God's creating and redeeming work, and how we develop the teachings of the Christian faith. As we start, and this is what I'd like us to look at today, a doctrine of God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, we must begin by saying we will never fully understand or comprehend the one God. If we did fully comprehend God, then God would cease to be God, or we in in his place would take his place, we would become God ourselves. Either we will have reduced him to our size, or we have, well, have in fact inflated ourselves, at least in our minds, to his size. When we confess our belief in one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we also deny that the three are identical. The Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father or the Son. So we affirm that the three are in fact distinguished. They are differentiated from each other. We also deny that these are three different gods. These, that we're naming three different gods. They are all God. They are one God. And they all share the same attributes that characterize each other. The doctrine of the Trinity is not a mathematical formula. And it's not a pattern for apportioning divinity that, that the Father is one-third God and the Son is one-third God and the Spirit is one-third God. Um, rather, the doctrine of the Trinity is a rule for how to apply the language we find in Scripture of the three and one. And particularly, how God, the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, acts in creation and redemption. So where do we begin? If, in fact, we're going to talk about creation and redemption and the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, where do we begin? We begin by saying that God is life. We affirm that God is life. He is not merely the living one, as if we had access to life apart from God, and that God is simply sort of life par excellence, that he is the model, the exemplar, from which all life is sort of getting its pattern. Um, It's not as though there are various ways of life. In spite of, in our time, people speaking of various lifestyles, that one can choose a lifestyle, as in this is the way I choose to live. No. Apart from God, any choice that we make is merely the way we choose to die. An alternative lifestyle is, in fact, simply another way to die. And we hear this time and time again in Scripture, though we may forget it. Consider what Moses said before the Israelites, before his death. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. God is life. All else is death. 
when we understand something of God's life as Father, Son, and Spirit, by God's grace we begin to realize and to understand that Trinitarian life is the only way there, in fact, could be life in creation. Otherwise, there would be nothing. Wilson argues, I think, quite well, if God were not one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there would not be creation. There would be nothing and no one to know that there is nothing. How is this? Why make this point? To confess belief in one God is to believe that God lives by relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit. And this relationship involves three persons. If there were be two persons, there in fact would be an exchange. But life is not merely reciprocal. There are aspects of life that are reciprocal, but in fact the foundation of life, and God is life, is based on relationship. Consider that if there were one God, solitary, not triune, what would life look like? Well, such a God would have to create something in order for there to be relationship. That God would not have relationship. He would be solitary, alone. So in order to have relationship, he would, in fact, have to create so that there would be this reciprocity, if you wish. But where would this solitary God find the energy, the resources to create? Ultimately, he would be as dependent on his creation as his creation would be on him. And neither, in the end, would be dependable. Where would the life that is given come from? If this God had life only once the world was created, if he would have relationship only once he had created the world, um, then where comes the energy to sustain this creation and this relationship? Only God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has life in God's self, so that the world is not created to give life to God or relationship to God, but purely out of God's grace, flowing from God's own sustaining relational life. The God who is triune creates not from the need for relationship. There is already relationship in the triune God, but in complete freedom from any external force or necessity. Many years ago, when I was a teenager, I had a, a very good friend who was a, a public speaker. I mean, at the age of 15 or 16, he had won gold medals uh, throughout the Philippines for his public speaking. And, and one of the things that he did was about creation. And it, it started out that God stepped out on the edge of space and he said, I'm lonely. And then he tells the story of creation. And we were all sort of intrigued by that. Wish I could go back in time and tell him, no, that's actually not the way it was. God did not create us because of any loneliness. God already had relationship. God, who is one Father, Son, and Spirit, already had something going before creation came along. In the life of the triune God, the Father freely gives himself to the Son, so that he is both fully and eternally the Father, and the Son is fully and eternally the Son. And likewise, the Son gives himself freely and fully to the Father. And in turn, he is fully and eternally Son and Father. See, it is the giving and receiving that we find in the Trinity that is relationship. And this is life. In Scripture, this is what life is. It is the giving and receiving. And the pattern, it's not even a pattern, that's not the way to put it. The basis for it 
where it has its roots, that it even happens in this creation, is because of God. Giving and receiving is life. And it may, in fact, be named love. We believe in one creator, Father, Son, and Spirit. However, let's be clear. In the biblical witness to creation and redemption by the Father, Son, and Spirit, the language used is that of praise and of thanksgiving, testimony, and wonder. But oftentimes, the language is not what we would consider Trinitarian. We don't find specific references to members of the Trinity. For example, when we began the series, we began in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We don't read, God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit, in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. I think in order to have a Trinitarian grammar of creation, we in fact must go to someone or somewhere where there already is a grammar, and that is in redemption. That when we look at redemption, we are given a much more explicit explanation that God the Father sends the Son, it is the Son who accomplishes the work, and it is the Spirit who continues the work. If we have a sense of this, then it's something that we can take back with us as we begin to re-examine the doctrine of creation. The God who came to us in Jesus Christ is also the God who creates the world. When we say that Jesus is Lord, we are saying at least two things. First of all, that he is God, and as such, the work that is ascribed to God in the Old Testament is true of Jesus. And we see Jesus as the creator, the creator of the universe. We saw it in our text today. We've also seen it in a previous text in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. I would suggest to you that this last verse I think we're much more comfortable with, that he is the head of the body, the church. Yes, this sounds very theological, this sounds very Christian. Yes, this is very spiritual. But to in fact say that he created the world and that he sustains it, that's, that's something that we would rather relegate to another realm. We call that maybe the realm of science, the realm of nature. But in fact, the two must go together. In terms of redemption, we confess that the Father sends the Son, the Son does the will of the Father, and the Spirit completes the work of redemption. He gives us life in the Son by the gift of faith. And this is what we find in creation. Creation comes from the Father through the work of the Son, by the life of the Spirit. And then it is returned to the Father by the life of the Spirit through the work of the Son. So what we confess, what we should confess, is that what is true of God's work and redemption is true of God's work and creation. In both, both works, creation and redemption, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have differentiated roles. It's a lot clearer, I think, in redemption than it is in creation. But this, in turn, helps us 
more clearly see God's work in creation. In redemption, we come to see that salvation is the will and work of one God. In the, will of the, in the will and work, the Father is the agent who sends the Son into the world. The Son is the direct agent of salvation through his incarnation, his crucifixion, and resurrection. The Spirit is the agent of the continuation and completion of our salvation through conviction, faith, and sanctification. So we can safely conclude that in creation, each member of the triune God is involved. If, in fact, we were to ascribe it to God the Father alone, we would not be reflecting the life of the triune God. We would, in fact, see God as solitary, not as three in one. And we would not be able to account for relationship. We simply would not. So when we come to the New Testament and things, I think, are, are a bit clearer there, that God sends the Son and the Son does what he's been told to do, He comes and lives among us. He is put to death. He is crucified. He is buried. And then he is raised from the dead. And then he sends the Spirit to continue the work. We see that most clearly. Now we need to take that paradigm and go back to creation and there have an understanding that each member of the Trinity is involved. I recognize that much of what we've looked at today is ultimately beyond our full comprehension and perhaps a bit wearisome. But it does, in fact, lay the groundwork. It lays the foundation for us to have a healthy doctrine of creation. So, before we leave, I want to remind you some things I said earlier. God is life. In the life of the triune God... The Father freely gives himself to the Son so that he is both fully and eternally the Father and the Son is fully and eternally the Son. Likewise, the Son gives himself freely as the Son to the Father so that each is fully and eternally Son and Father. And that giving to each other is, in fact, the life of the Holy Spirit who, in receiving from and giving to the Father and the Son, is fully and eternally the Spirit. Again, this is beyond our ability to fully comprehend. But what I want you to hear today is that in the giving and receiving, there is life. That is what life is, the giving and receiving. It is something we also call love. So when we speak of life, we should speak of giving and receiving. And yet the reality is creation is not as it should be. This giving and receiving in order to be living has been turned upside down. Let's be honest, we don't think in these terms. In rebellion against God's rule and God's way of life, the world is now ruled not by giving and receiving, but by taking and keeping. If you look in Scripture, the word for this taking and keeping is death. This is death. We first find it in Genesis chapter 3, where Eve saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. She took it and ate it. And the key to understanding this act is that she, in fact, took it. She did not believe 
that God had given and would continue to give all that was needed for blessing in life. Instead of allowing God to give and she would receive, she in fact decided, I will take it and keep it for myself. And in doing so, she turned from life to death. Life is giving and receiving. Death is taking and keeping. And again, I don't know if you recall what we confessed earlier today from Psalm 106. How quickly we forget what you have done. We don't wait for your plan, your plan to unfold. We give in to our craving. We put you to the test. We take and keep. Sadly, the pattern of refusing gift and blessing instead of taking keeping, which leads to death, is very well established. This is, in fact, the way we have, this is what we are familiar with. This is the way the world works. We do know, intuitively, that death is wrong. That, that death is not, this isn't the way things are supposed to be. But as Christians, it is only in the person of Jesus Christ that now we begin to see death and life clearly. In our text we read, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. In order for us to recover a healthy doctrine of creation, we must recover a healthy doctrine of one God. We believe in one God, one Creator, who is Father, Son, and Spirit. And He is life. He is life. And to turn from Him or to be apart from Him is to be in death. Let's pray together. Our Father, today we have been in deep waters as we seek to understand who you are, Father, Son, and Spirit. By your Spirit, may we have some understanding, if nothing else, to come to see that you are life. And your life is giving and receiving. That before the world was ever created, between Father, Son, and Spirit, there was giving and receiving. This is relationship. This is love. This is what you intended for your creation. But ever since Adam and Eve, we are more likely to take and keep. At least we certainly want to take and keep. We are driven by envy and covetousness. And sometimes even theft. We live in a world of death. As wisdom says at the end of Proverbs 8, to all those who hate me love death. Help us to see if we are to recover a healthy, robust doctrine of creation. We must understand that creation and redemption are part of the same story and that you are the author, you are the source. You are the creator and the redeemer. And above all, you are life.
I think we're far too modern, far too scientific for our own good. By your grace, may we begin to see things as they are through Jesus Christ, that this is your creation. Not simply something you did millennia ago. You are still at work in your creation. And you are at work in redeeming all things to yourself. I thank you that you brought us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.